So I think I'll just pick up today where I left off yesterday. We were looking at the purificatory nature of practice and seeing how exploring the goodness of this willingness to abide with the somatic, visceral quality of purification in terms of the way uh, kanti, as we explored, and other qualities are developed through this patient willingness, this allowing what's here to have its arising and its expression and to be seen. We were exploring how the uh, long-held tension patterns and things associated with the past and memories, uh, etc., have the space sometimes for the first time to be aired, to move, to release. And I left you on the cliffhanger of talking about what sounds ra- what could sound like uh, something rather religiously dogmatic the purification of karma and i'm aware when i say oh, if i i my sense is if i hear myself say oh this afternoon i'm going to teach about the purification of karma <laughs> really <laughs> And I don't want to speak about it in a a religiously dogmatic way, but it's worth pointing out that uh, it's there. We have the same kind of idea, uh, those of you who come from some kind of Judeo-Christian background. The idea, uh, particularly in Christianity, of atoning for one's sins Again, it's kind of rather heavy-duty kind of uh, idea. And in the East, the idea of purifying karma. And there's various ways within religious systems to do that. Mostly they involve uh, a, a kind of disconnected version. So, for example, in the Catholic tradition, one can atone for one's sins by saying Hail Marys. It's not very cl- made very clear what the relationship is between hailing Mary and atoning for one's sins, but that's one of the things that's uh, offered. And in the East, in the tr- in the Hindu tradition, in the way the Buddha was, the culture that the Buddha was brought up with, for example, there might be one might purify one's karma through various pujas or rituals or by paying a priest even better rather than having to do the ritual oneself you pay somebody else to do the ritual for you and one can purify one's karma that way so that's not the way I want to speak about it the Buddha was very outspoken against some of the the ritual practices and religious dogmas of his day, even though quite a lot of them actually survive intact within orthodox Buddhist teachings, he was very critical of them. And one of his famous lines, a a priest in the Hindu tradition is uh, called Brahmin, 
And one of the famous lines of the Buddha, he says, one does not become a Brahman by birth. Brahman we might translate as great one. So that was the priestly caste known as Brahman. One does not become Brahman by birth. But it says one becomes Brahman by the goodness of one's actions. And it's hard maybe at the, at the cultural and historical distance that we find ourselves, it's hard to appreciate what a radical or revolutionary thing that was. We, li- we live in a theoretical meritocracy right, where the idea that we have the kind of have a lot of opportunity in life and that we're not born into a fixed destiny but have the opportunity to create our own destiny something like that you might be comfortable or uncomfortable with the word destiny but some sense of a lot of social mobility and opportunity that's open to us I say a theoretical meritocracy because, of course, there are a lot of mitigating factors in that. Race, class, gender, all of those mitigate the theoretical meritocracy that we find ourselves in in different ways. Class, very much in this country, mitigates that. Race, very much in the US, mitigates that. Gender, pretty much everywhere. So we live in the kind of, uh, we at least live in the rhetoric of meritocracy. It's a bit of an aside. But it's interesting, just that sense, as I say, it's maybe hard at this cultural and historical distance, but important, helpful, interesting to reflect. The Buddha was very much a social revolutionary. And same, again, if we come back to the Christian tradition, Christ was very much a social revolutionary. Hanging out with the disaffected members of society, turning over tables in the temple, critical of moneylenders, etc., etc., The social revolutionary aspects of teachings easily get uh, brushed away. That's part of religious orthodoxy. Religious orthodoxy doesn't like to foment social revolution. Religious orthodoxy likes to foment um, uh, towing the religious line. And so here we find ourselves as the inheritors we might say the inheritors of Dharma practice, also the inheritors of the, whatever uh, religious culture we may have grown up in. You may have grown up in one or another or a, a non-religious culture. And yet even if you grew up in a way or have adopted what seems or feels to you like a completely non-religious culture, Nevertheless, the influence of religious ideas is there in the, ba- in the background of our worldview. Even if, that's, if it's the religion of science, which shares all the same um, attributes as any other religion. 
there's a kind of creation mythology in science, right? Some a story about how uh, life and the universe began, and various attempts to understand the world and the universe we live in, so as to make sense of our lives, etc. So, I don't want to speak about any of that. <laughs> this, maybe I need to unpack the word karma a little. I'm, I'm not speaking when we hear, you know, see for yourself the associations that may be there with the word karma, karma in uh, Pali or karma in Sanskrit. And all kinds of um, ideas that, have, that get latched onto that, that give it some sense of um, something like a kind of cosmic ledger book in which uh, uh, good or bad deeds are recorded and in which will somehow come round in some way as to uh, reward us or punish us. That's the, uh, very broadly, that's the kind of religiously dogmatic view of karma. The word karma means action. So if we're interested in purifying our karma, or clarifying was the other word we used yesterday, clarifying our actions, Two types of karma. One we can do nothing about, and one we can do plenty about. So, the first kind, what's the karma we can do nothing about? The way the actions of the past are producing what's happened, the results in the present. Right? And that's going on all the time. If you uh, ate too much lunch, that's the karma in the past, action in the past, then the result in the present will be feeling full up. Nothing you can do. You can't go back and change the past. So we're constantly inheriting the results of what's happened in the past. And the other kind of karma, the action, the movement, the intention, of what we're doing in the present, which is going to shape what happens next. And a way I think it's helpful to think of karma beyond just the translation as action is in terms of, because this is how we experience it, this is how we get caught up in karma, in cause and effect, is in terms of habit energy, which we spoke about before. Uh, habit energy, that we get to see our habit, our style, in relation to the stimuluses, the stimuli of life. Well, what's, what do we do when in the face of some pleasant experience or some pl unpleasant experience? Right? What we tend to do is what we've become habituated to do. And you, we learn a lot about our habit energy 
by just seeing how we respond. It may be um, that you're late for lunch, for example. What do you do if you're late for lunch? How one responds doesn't just, it's not just, we don't have some just spontaneous response. We generally, the response we might have to any situation is the response that is the karma of the past impacting in the present. In other words, the habit energy that we've built up. So if one has built up a habit energy through the actions in the past of generating anxious anxiety, if you've built up, in other words, the karma, the action, the habit energy of anxiety, then that will conduce, in the moment of being late to lunch, to having an anxious response. Oh, what am I going to do? How will I feel like at four o'clock? I can't get through until soup. And anyway, soup won't be enough to fill me up, etc. So that's, that's, there's the, uh, it's the karma of the past. There's no, this is nothing to do with a cosmic ledger book. Right? Just seeing the way, oh, that which we've created, that which we've given habit energy to, that which has become the mind's tendencies in the past, will tend to shape how we, res- how we respond to what happens in the present. If one has cultivated a lot of blame for whatever reason if the habit energy has gone to blame then when we see that oh there's no food left at lunchtime easily that habit energy gives rise to a blaming mind state what's the matter with the people who work here why don't they make more food etc if uh, we could give many examples right Mm. See for yourself what, what might happen if you're late for lunch and there's no food left. Our practice, as one as we've been emphasizing, of grounding our attention in the hereness of things, in the immediacy of experience, because this is the only place we can meet anything. And in terms of karma and habit energy and our practice as a disruptive technology for the workings of karma, then this is, here is where all karma is happening. Here is where we get to see the ways we have been in the past and how they shape our responses, our tendencies, our patterns in the present. And... Here is the place where we get to recreate that. Here is the place where we get to create some space in which to respond differently. To interrupt the habit pattern of decades maybe. To get to uh, notice and explore and interrupt the largely unconscious reactive ways in which we tend to respond to situations.
our engagement with the immediacy of things opens up, in other words, that space that uh, Viktor Frankl mentions in that famous quote that you may or may not know, and that if you don't, I can't tell you because I've forgotten it. But it's something about there being a gap between stimulus and response. Do you know that quote? There's a gap between stimulus and response, he says, and then he says something nice about it. <laughs> Go on, Cheryl. Really? In that gap? Okay, okay. So, mostly, we don't notice that gap. That gap, the stimulus gives rise to a, a quick, habituated, we could say in this context, a karmic response, or a karmic reaction. We react in line with our habit energy. We're clarifying our habit energy. Another way of saying purifying karma is about listening. <laughs> Hold on, I've got a text. <laughs> my son. <laughs> Opening up that, that space wherein stimulus arises, right? some situation arises, I'm late for lunch, or the way we're noticing in this kind of fine way, moment by moment, being here, the touch of the pleasant or the touch of the unpleasant, the way we're noticing the when something arises, the tendency to be seduced by it, to contract around it, to make a story about it, etc., etc., and. The nature of our practice as one which is clarifying, one which is giving these qualities we've been speaking about, quality of spaciousness, quality of gentleness, it serves to open up that space. It's a little hard to speak about. Because normally our reactions happen very quickly. But Ironically, counterintuitively, the more inside experience we are, the more we slow down in our meeting of experience, the more the space in experience opens up. And so an, a lot of processing of experience can happen. Usually, and when we're looking with a busy, restless, agitated and reactive mind, there doesn't seem to be any space in our experience in which to explore, reflect, see what's happening, and choose how to respond. But the more our consciousness is clarified, the more, for example, this quality of kanti is there, the more mind is uncluttered by a lot of random, uh, restless thought the more efficient that processing is. And so within a even a mind moment, 
And maybe you've had this experience. Maybe you know very directly what I'm speaking about. Within a mind moment, consciousness is able to see what's happening, to recognize the habitual response to it, to see where that response comes from, to, to feel the, the reactive tendency that goes with it, to choose to not follow that path, to relax the contraction, and to end the karma. In some ways we might say our practice is one of progressively just slowing down. Just slowing down. Awareness has the effect of feeling as if our system, our nervous system is slowing down. Our thought life is slowing down. It's not to be confused with just moving more slowly like those funny versions of walking meditation people sometimes do. Body may be moving at a slow speed or a fast speed, but the felt sense is one of having time and space to explore experience. Time and space are completely subjective. So, the way we might be moving or the amount of information we might be processing doesn't have anything to do with how much time it takes. It has to do with how slowed down and how attuned and how spacious we are in response to what's happening. And so, instead of the usual procession of karma, habit energy, the past shapes the present, and then the present shapes the future, and on we go. The past shapes the present, the present shapes the future, and on we go, reinforcing the same habits. Instead, we're sitting in this space between stimulus and response. We're walking in this space between stimulus and response. Or arriving late for lunch in this space between stimulus and response. And suddenly, an actual realm of choice is there. An actual realm of possibility to do things differently. The possibility for the first time in our lives, maybe, to not just do what we've been habitually conditioned to do. To not just follow the habit of that's been built up over decades. That's one of the most extraordinary human freedoms. The freedom to disrupt our karma, to disrupt our conditioning, to wake up from the way our culture and our family and our education and our neuroses, and our fears, and our relationships, and our obsessions, 
and our defences have shaped us until now. To wake up to the way they have shaped us. And to, dis- and to begin, at least, to discover a way to act, maybe not independent from that conditioning, but at, the, at least wide awake to it. Uh, a choice, a possibility to be able to act in accordance with what we really value. A choice, a possibility to be able to respond to life in a way that's actually aligned with what we want to support. Mostly our actions aren't really in line with what we want to support. We have a whole bunch of theoretical ideals, things we like, like meditation. We say, oh, meditation's wonderful. Tell other people, you should meditate. have some ideal about meditation practice as this wonderful thing, and it's so central to my life, except I don't actually do it very much. (laughs) So all kinds of ideals. In the ideal, I respond peacefully and wisely and compassionately and kindly, always. That's the ideal. That's what I'd like to do. In, and I cho- choose, and I make choices that are uh, ecological, and that are spiritual, and etc. etc. Endless, endless, lovely ideas. And then, the fight between the ideals of things I l- would like to support, and I tend to tell other people that I support, and the conditioning reality which we're calling karma. So open up uh, that realm of possibility. And the more that possibility is opened up, the more that sense of actually living our life in a way that's aligned with what we most value. The more we open up that sense of our life being an expression of what we most love, and we're still fielding whatever way the uh, conditioning of the past ripens in the present. We're still fielding, noticing, making room for, allowing, exploring the uh, habit energy that shows up. And yet the more we explore that, the more we find this space between stimulus and response to do something differently, the more that habit energy gets clarified, purified. The less of a tight hold it has on us, the less compelled we feel to follow it. The reason I brought my phone was because I wanted to read you something which was written by Rob Berbea, who many of you will know as the resident teacher here at Gaia House for the last nine or ten years. And he's recently been uh, diagnosed with cancer. And he's 
recovering from an intensive surgery and staying nearby to here on Dartmoor. And this is in the public domain. He wrote this just on the website that's giving updates about his health uh, a week ago. And it's, uh, it's an example of somehow this sense of the purification of habit energy in such a way that as that space opens up and that alignment opens up, he says, I feel in my spirit deeply at peace with the possibility that I may die in the not-too-distant future. I hope it won't be for quite a while. I don't want to die, but I still sense and have access to a perception of a timeless dimension to everything. And that makes a huge difference. On reflection, I feel I have lived my life and made choices as fully as I could from my heart's truths and deepest longings, allowing and encouraging what has wanted to come through. So I have no regrets. I have received so many blessings, so many graces in this life, and even now through these challenges. Something in my heart just, keep, just keeps bowing to it all. It's, uh, it's difficult language to speak about purifying karma. And in a way, that's why I, I refer to, to Rob's piece of writing. And trying to speak about it in, in a way of a clarification of old habits, contractions, fears. And the possibility as we recognize and resolve the habituated conditioning of the past, to come increasingly into a view and an understanding of life and our participation in life that is actually unimaginable from the place of the old conditioning. All the old conditioning can imagine is more of the same. So we pay attention to that space. That space that's constantly here and opening up as our habits come through. And the way in which any, every, each moment is showing us that. When you get uncomfortable in the meditation hall, when the, if there's no food left for lunch, when you find yourself having some kind of emotional reaction to what's happening, well, you can play out the ego drama in terms of the object, what seems to be the problem, what it is that you want, what it is you'd like, what it is that should be different, etc. Or you can look for, oh, 
what's the what's familiar about this what's familiar about this anxiety or this blame or this confusion what might be a way for me to put this down That's the way that, well, it's a way also to speak about the purification of states. Uh, Looking this morning at this procession of mind states that just moves through our day. And like we said yesterday about the difficult ideas we can get into in terms of ideas of purity. ideas of some pure mind or ideas of some pure state as if such a thing could possibly exist. So what's the purification of states? It's not the trying to get rid of some states and have others. Buddhism can suffer a little bit from that. Or maybe not Buddhism but Buddhists. Usually trying to get rid of um, most states, actually. (laughs) Except for wisdom and compassion. They're the the king and queen of states. Wisdom's the king, compassion's the queen. And then we get busy trying to have wisdom and compassion, we might say, or at least trying to look wise and compassionate in some way. So that kind of um, overlay, that kind of rejection, can't lead to a purification of states. Partly, the, what we've been talking about, the witnessing of this procession, we increasingly see just how ephemeral states are, how uh, fluid states can be so that we increasingly just take the state of the moment less personally. Like the image we said about weather blowing across the sky. And there's a few uh, particular skillful means that can be helpful with various sticky states. Redirection is sometimes what's helpful. In some states, we see a rising and it's just like, oh, I know where that goes. It doesn't go anywhere helpful. Sometimes it's enough to just see, I don't need to go there. And just take our attention somewhere else. Like uh, jealousy, for example. might have some tendency, some habituated, some karmic propensity for getting jealous. Jealous of the way the person next to us has some wonderful posture. Or whatever it might be. And then we start to just notice the mind going down that road of comparison. Right? Diminishing oneself and elevating the other, for example. And when we're able to notice it, oh, jealousy, just redirect your mind. 
So there's a variety of these skillful means. Some of them work better for some states than others. Some of them work better for some people than others. So just to see for yourself as I uh, explore them. But sometimes it's just simple. Redirect your attention to something else. If you know that that's a mind state that leads you to a sense of diminishment or to a sense of tension or to something that's just unhelpful, unskillful, sticky. Sometimes investigating the state We spoke a little bit this morning about that which knows confusion isn't confused. So a state like confusion sometimes just to investigate the state. And that doesn't mean investigating the content. Right? So what does confusion do? It produces confused thoughts. But to know that you're confused gives you the chance, oh, well, what is this state like? That's such a useful question. What is this state like? Particularly, what's it like viscerally, physically? Confusion often has a sort of uh, an oscillating quality to it, a, 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 a jittery quality, a blurry quality. Just to let yourself feel the blurriness so that the state isn't in charge. Rather than being completely identified with the state, called I am confused, one's actually engaged with the state. Oh, there is confusion. It's blurry. It's jittery. It's, uh, it tends towards thoughts that begin with, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what I should uh, say, etc., etc. investigating the state to take the habit energy out of it. Some states, one really just needs to cut off, particularly judgment, self-judgment. Even if the, the, the judging thought has some element of truth in it, It might be true, I might be sitting here, uh, oh, my posture is so terrible, I'm such a bad meditator, I can't concentrate for more than five minutes. That might all be true, actually, right? You know, if it wasn't true, it wouldn't get some purchase, right? If it didn't have a bit of truth in it. But the fact that it might be true is irrelevant, right? The fact that it comes with that judgmental tone, that harsh tone, that critical tone, means that all it can do is undermine your confidence in yourself, erode your capacity to inhabit and uh, embody your practice. So the best efficient response to self-judgment is just to cut it off. In Zen they talk about cutting off the mind road. In Tibetan iconography, they have the Manjushri with a flaming sword. Right? Flaming sword means business. Right? This isn't a kind of, oh, please, judgment, go away and leave me alone. This is, whoosh, 
unambiguous. It's not a negotiation. It's not, oh yes, but I'm doing my best and I was a bit mindful uh, a few minutes ago. Right? You don't get into some debate with judgment. You cut it off. As a way to re-recover your capacity to just be here. Your capacity to be here gently and spaciously with the fact that your posture doesn't feel ideal and the fact that your mind's wandering and the fact that you're not very concentrated. So what? You might not recover perfect poise and great concentration, but you can certainly recover the sincerity of your practice, your willingness to be here and meet what's here. Some states, it's helpful just to embrace. Sadness, for example, and grief. Often we go, keep, we go back to the memory of that which we're sad about and try and figure it out, oh, this, and oh, if I'd have done it differently, and oh, if only. But you can't resolve a state by repeating the story about it. If you could, you would have managed it by now. Right. And it doesn't matter how many times we repeat the story to ourselves, all we're doing is fueling the state without resolving it. Actually making room for the state. Really allowing your heart to feel what's being felt. In that way that's digestive. That's soothing. That allows the weather of the state to be felt. So there might be different skillful means. And if you're trying to remember them, I realize there's an acronym there. The acronym is RICE. Redirect, investigate, cut off, embrace. Pretty good, huh? Through these different skillful means, then, we actually start to take states less personally. We actually see their ephemeral quality. We actually see that they're not. It's not that I decide to take them less personally. It's just I see that they can't be taken personally. We start to feel rather expansive, rather transparent, like the sky through which the weather passes, rather limitlessly available to whatever blows through. Because we're not picking it up and making much of it and obsessing around it as who I am. And the the beauty of that is the more spacious we are, the more expansive we are, the more inclusive we are, the more available we feel to life, the more naturally the states that start to show up as that purification process happens, the more the states that start to show up are expansive states, caring states, sensitive states, responsive states, 
intuitive states, wise states, clear states. Not because you've tried to be clear and wise and peaceful, but because there's a natural clarifying of the states that we've held on to, that we've reinforced our ego drama through. So, moment by moment, this field of experience, this increasingly unified field of experience that we might refer to as body or as mind or as heart or as world, but that we increasingly recognize is all happening, whatever we call it, wherever we point, is all happening here in this fluid stream of experience. We're able to listen for what the information is right now. What's ripening? What's just habitual? What's asked of me in how I can meet and attend to this? And rather beautifully, rather gracefully. We find that this field of experience clarifies. Like in that image of ghee we were speaking about yesterday. And I offer these reflections not particularly to inspire us in terms of some vision of a purified or clarified life, but rather just to remind us to be interested in this. What's this state? What's this movement? What's tugging at my attention right now? What's asking to be met, explored? All we need to take care of is the meeting and exploring. Purification part will take care of itself. Okay, friends. Thank you.